Hello and welcome to the second reel of episode four of the Double Reel Film Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the various features we've provided so far on our monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. Now, just in case you've had an extended intermission since the first reel, and tough shit if you haven't, here's a recap of what we've done already. A roundup of the month in the life of a busy film nerd, including some visits to actual cinemas to see actual films again. A look at the classic Scandinavian coming-of-age vampire film Let the Right One In. And the first part of this month's James Adamson in conversation with James Adamson, looking at films we were shown at school. Coming up now, the concluding part of the Adamsons discussing the use of school resources to show us inappropriate films. Then the hidden gem, looking at Alan Parker's classic detective horror mashup Angel Heart. The one that got away, looking at David Finch's fascinating but unrealised Captain Nemo project. And the remake Hate Watch, featuring the new but entirely unwelcome version of Point Break. But first, let's take you back to that special guest interview. So I've, I've got a couple more. There's a there's a couple of animated films that I was shown, and I think they were trying to educate us, and it didn't work out. They wanted how they wanted. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a Disney animation from about 1981 called The Fox and the Hound. That rings a bell. Is it the one. With it, the- do, it doesn't get revived much because, frankly, it's shite, and it's from <laughs> that dark, it's from the dark ages of Disney animation. Because basically, they did the Aristocats in 1970, and then until Little Mermaid came out in about 89, 90 all of their animated films were shit. I mean, some people like the Robin Hood film they did, but it's pants. And I don't know why, but they just suddenly, the the quality of of Disney animation plummeted, and this was right in the middle of that worst era. And basically, it's their typical anthropomorphic stuff, but they picked a story, I don't understand how they thought this would appeal to kids. It's about a fox cub and a hunting dog puppy who, from a contrived dramatic situation, grow up together and are friends. Oh, fuck that. And then when they become adults, the fox sort of runs away and he joins the pack of hunting dogs and has to kind of hunt the uh, the fox. And then they realize that, oh, it's his old friend and he's got like a moral uh, quandary about that. And I, honestly, I think they were trying to teach us something about, you know, being friends with people, even though they come from different backgrounds. And even if it was a good, even if they'd done it well, it's still like a, a very kind of weak basis to tell that story. Because normally if you're friends with someone from different backgrounds, it's because, I don't know, they're ethnically Chinese and you're Jewish. And there's actually no difference. <laughs> you yeah. know, come from different species of animal that normally try to kill each other. So I don't know why they thought that would actually help us with our little, like learning and growing that they were trying to do. Um, they're so soft over there in America as well. Like, that's a nice story about two things that should be enemies, you know, becoming friends. Whereas over here in Britain, they made us watch Watership Down. That's the next thing on my list. And is that actually? That's what, yeah, that's <laughs> the next thing I was going to talk to. Oh, and that is like, my God, why did you make me watch Watership Down? <laughs> Did they make you watch? Did they make you watch Watership Down and then make you watch Fox and the Hound like the day after, just to kind of boost your mood? No, I know that I, I put them together because they were like two different cat- two sort of similar categories. But no, they, I think that my memory's my memory's fading with age, Mister Randon. But the um, <laughs> uh, I put them together. I think they were watching completely different times. But they they thought it would be educational for us to watch Watership Down because apparently it's an allegory about you know human existence and stuff. And that's it's horrific. I mean, it's, it's too, haunting. It's, it's a fucking PG. Yeah, I don't know. Well, the thing is, they had a real problem with the film, like, classification back then, because you were either a PG or a 15, and it meant a lot of things were a 15 that you, you wonder why, you wouldn't wonder now why they gave it such a high rating, and there were other things that stayed as a PG, which really should have been a higher rated film, and Warship Down is, I think because it's animated and it's about rabbits, I think a lot of parents and, and sort of teachers would thought it'd be okay for kids to watch it, but it's really not. I mean, the, the animated rabbits, there's one scene where the rabbits, like, it's its face is covered in blood because it's just bitten mm-hmm. someone. It's like the killer rabbit out in Monty Python, the Holy Grail. <laughs> um, 
and you know there's realistic depictions of the rabbits being attacked by dogs humans and hawks and yeah. other rabbits that's awful and, and then in the middle of it they have a the song bright eyes by art garfunkel <laughs> it's like what what tone are you trying to set for this film because you are all over the place it's a real acid trip of a film like oh yeah because yeah because some of the rabbits are psychic aren't they oh man <laughs> can you imagine trying to pitch that film now yeah, that, that would be going on Disney Plus, would it? Like, oh, hell. <laughs> oh, incredible! That's yeah. uh, such a it's such a weird film, and the, you do have this thing that is like, on the one hand, it was a bit of a nanny state back then. That's loads of films got banned from being on DVD because they thought people would like become serial killers if they watched "I Spit on Your Grave." And on the other hand, they let kids watch Jaws and walk shit down yeah. when they were far too young to to uh, to watch them, and they were hugely uh, on. On I tell you what, on um. Amazon Prime Video, Warship Down is rated as you. Fuck off. No, no, it's grim. Someone gets shot. One of the rabbits gets shot. One of the rabbits gets shot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rated you. You can buy the Blu-ray and it is rated you, suitable for all. And then one of the rabbits, I'm reading it now, right, ends with Hazel getting shot. Fiverr follows a vision, a vision of the mythical black rabbit to his injured brother. Kehar returns and while pecking out buckshot, pecking out buckshot from Hazel's leg with his beak, Reports of the many doors, the large Ephraf. He gets shot and someone starts eating the buckshot out of his leg. And it's just... you! <laughs> oh, the 70s. Honestly, honestly, man. Like, my generation, right? Everybody watched Jaws when they were kids and were traumatised. And we all watched Watership Down and were traumatised. Oh, man, that, that's wild. So you got to, you got any more you want to throw out there? Uh, the la- well, I've, there's other films that I've, I've probably seen. I think I watched like Matilda at school and stuff like that, which is a good film. But the last distinct memory I think I have of films at school is Mr. Smith. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Smith was one of three members of the religious and model education department with the surname Smith. We had Mr. Smith, Dr. Smith, and Mrs. Smith. No relation to each other. But basically, uh-huh. we, got, we got to that point in Army where, not that we'd stop giving a shit about religion, but you drop it you take it in fifth year, and you drop it in sixth year. So you, you, you wouldn't take it for your final year of sixth form down in England. Basically, if that was the if that was the case. But in like first year, they do like we had we had Doctor Smith, who who had like a great amount of knowledge about religion. I never had Mrs. Smith as a teacher, um, apart from when she covered a French class once. But Doctor Smith was he like he'd been to like Jerusalem. He'd been to like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So he like knew his stuff. And he would teach us great stuff. And, uh, you know, we learned a lot in his lessons about different religions and different, you know, theologies around the world. Whereas Mr. Smith, I only ever had Mr. Smith for when we went on holiday to Holland in second year. Fuck knows why they let him organise a holiday to Holland, because that's another story in itself. <laughs> and I only ever had him in fourth and fifth year. And by that point, they'd kind of stopped teaching you about, you know, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity and stuff like that. They'd stop, they'd stop doing that. It was just kind of like, it was more about the moral education. They just kind of yeah, ethical lessons for life and stuff. But he, we watched films on the because we, when we went to Holland, they drove, they they drove there from from Aberdeen in Scotland. They drove fourteen hours from the school grounds all the way down to it was uh, Valkenburg. Um, it's in Maastricht. It's in that yeah. little bit in the bottom of Holland that's like surrounded by France, Belgium, and Germany. So it was good. So we got to go to like loads of movies. But we watched films on that, and we watched uh, Robin Hood, Prince and Tights. 
Is that Robin Hood Menton? Menton, sorry. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it was the the title was a parody of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, Prince of Thieves. That's yeah. So it was a. I really enjoyed that. It wasn't really a thought provoking film, I and mean, it wasn't meant to be a thought provoking film from the lesson. But I just enjoyed Mr. Smith's uh, film selection. That was one of the. Yeah, it, it wasn't. Ba- it wasn't bad, was it? For late era Mel Brooks, it was. It had some. It had yeah. some of his his touches in it, didn't it? Not Which quite his classic yeah. era, but Mr. Smith was a fucking legend. Right, he's from Bristol. So he basically he'd come in and we'd, we'd sit down. And he'd be, I think it was like first thing on a Monday morning, and we'd sit there and he'd just be moaning about Bristol Rovers losing at the weekend. He'd be like Bristol Rovers have lost at the weekend. And like, right, so he'd be like, what film are we watching this week, Mr. Smith? He's like, we're not watching a film this week. He's like, we're watching a film this week, Mr. Smith. What are we watching? So we watched we watched something called the the Man Who Sued God. Isn't that a Billy Connolly? It film? is. It's a Billy Connolly film. It's not very well heard of. But basically, he's a. Isn't it based on a true story? Or inspired by an yeah. actual case or something, and then they went and. Um, I'll, I'll draw up now the man who sued God. But basically, it's a guy who I think is like a fisherman. Yeah, it's an Australian comedy um, starring Billy Connolly and Judy Davis, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a success in Australia. It like, debuted at you know number one, but he's 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 a, he's a delusioned lawyer. Um, but he basically he's the disillusioned lawyer. Sorry. And his fishing boat struck by lightning and it's frozen to pieces. And he goes to insurance company and says, look, my boat's been destroyed. And he doesn't get any money because it's an act of God. Because it's an act of God, yeah. And basically, Billy Connolly, you know, it's, it's a really good, a really enjoyable film. But it's, um, you know, and I think it ends with, you know, I can't, I can't actually remember. It's it's a moral victory kind of film. I don't think he gets them. I can't rightly remember. But the best bit about it was Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith stole the show with this. So obviously, it's a Billy Connolly film. So there's swading and stuff like that in it. And Mr. Smith forgetting that we're all like 16 and 17 and probably used worse language than what was being you know said in the film every time there was a swear word you try and cough over it <laughs> <laughs> so billy Connolly's like his boat's just blow- been blown up and he's going off oh, for fuck's sake but mr smith would try to cover up and you're like oh for fuck <coughs> sake and you're like what are you, what are you doing mr smith and then we so had, um, in Paradiso where they're trying to cut out all the naughty bits from the films they're watching yeah then we also saw um shawshank redemption which is a great film, um, but I think that, with the man who God, I think it was kind of trying to be. I don't actually know. I don't even know that. Like, to be honest, with Mr. Smith, you don't even know the lesson he was trying to teach you with it. <laughs> but yeah. it, was, it was kind of like I think maybe drawing something into like you know what happens if um, your boat's destroyed like that and you can't you can't actually claim any compensation yeah. for it and stuff like that. So it was an interesting yeah. kind of thought thought provoking topic. But Shawshank was yeah. more about you know the legal system and like being tried and you know convicted of a crime that you didn't commit and things like that. Yeah. But I think, I can't remember if this is the film we saw in. In Shawshank Redemption, is there a sex scene where he catches his wife with the guy? Is it is it through a window or they're in a car or something early on in the film? Yeah, something like that, because it's definitely yeah. not the man who sued God. But the, yeah, yeah. Remember, basically, there's a sex scene. We were watching a film with, in Mr. Smith's class and there was a sex scene in it. And then <laughs> he was trying to like... He didn't want us seeing this, you know, th- this naked body. So it's on one of those big projector screens. Yes. The big, they, I don't know if they had them in Europe at school, but they basically they yeah, moved yeah, all the big yeah. screens. Um, they're all interactive whiteboards now. And yeah. there's a big, there's like this sex scene happening. He's like, oh, no, no, I can't let them all see this. So what he does is he goes, he goes to like just under his desk and he's got the pin bags. And he goes to grab the pin bags and cover the screen. And cover the screen from the sex scene, but it doesn't work because it's a projector. It's not been. They're just projecting someone as pair of tits under a bit. Projecting a pair of tits onto Mr. Smith's back. We're dying of laughter trying to to watch Shawshank Redemption with Mr. Smith in the way with a big pair of tits on his shoulder blades. (laughs) 
Oh, very man. good. Oh, very good. He's, he was a legend. When he retired, <laughs> they filmed like a goodbye video. And he, he just walks past the school and as he's leaving, he gives two fingers up to it and then walks away. Yeah. So I've only, I've only got two more categories. I don't know how many more films you've got. That's my, That was my last one. So I've got two more categories and the, the last one's kind of a bit of a special mention. So probably my favourite experiences watching films at school was for A-level. Our French teacher, he was a really, really cool guy. I mean, to look at him, he wasn't cool because he had this massive head. But um, he was he was really good. And like from day one in French A-level lessons, he only spoke French. And he'd only respond to you if you spoke French to him. So you just okay. had to keep up and try and find a way to put what you were trying to say into words. Which meant I learned to speak quite good French because of that. He was really committed to it. But he was also really good for showing us French films. Um, and I assume the idea was... I think he probably enjoyed French films and just wanted to show them. But the idea was that if you hear French spoken by French people, you'll, you'll get into it more. Although, yeah. you know, it's no one was asking où est la bibliothèque in the middle of these films, so it didn't really help us. <laughs> but we saw we saw Subway, which is one of Luc Besson's earliest films. Okay, got Christopher Lambert in it, and he's got his hair done like Luc, Luc Besson. You know, Luc Besson's got this big less so now because he's older, big shocking mess of blonde hair, bleach blonde hair. Okay. So the main character is basically Luc Besson. Yeah, he's, he's portraying, you know, he's, he's got an actor portraying him on screen, sort of. And it's about a guy who he commits a crime or he's, he's, at, he's in hiding and there's a load of underground subcultures who live underground behind the Paris Metro. Right. Uh, it, it, look, the whole thing's paper thin. It doesn't stand up for about five seconds in terms of a, a, a realistic plot, but it was quite fun watching all these different subcultures living underground. And there's a great chase scene between the transport police and a pickpocket on roller skates because it's 1984. <laughs> Obviously, there was a pickpocket on roller skates. Um, he also showed us a film called Diva. This was like a real kind of stylized director called Jean-Jacques Benet. It's him and Luc Besson were known as Cinema du Luc, and they were a lot of people pissed off about it at the time because it was all about, they thought it was all style over substance because it all actually looked really good. But it's about a guy who's a fan of opera, young guy obsessed with this opera singer, and he, he records an illegal bootleg of her singing because she won't release any recordings. And yeah. at the same time, a witness to like a criminal conspiracy by the police drops a tape into his bag to try and get the evidence out before she's killed. So he's got two tapes in his bag. He doesn't know why he's got two tapes. And one is the uh, highly sought-after bootleg of an opera singer, and the other one's like evidence of the police, a police senior police officer running a criminal sort of um, gang. Right. And he's two loads of people chasing him, and he doesn't know why. And one of them's a bunch of people who want to steal the recording off him, and the other one's a police who want to like kill him and, and destroy all the evidence. And again, it doesn't make any sense. It looks awesome. It's a really kind of stylish film to watch. The other one is a film called... This has got a few different names because the, the original didn't really... Um, the original French title doesn't really translate very well to English. It's known as Le Flic or Le Cop over here. But it was called Le, Le Ripou, and it's about corrupt police, and it's a comedy. And essentially, the the the, the, the lead, lead character is Philip Noir out of Cinema Paradiso. Right. It's a corrupt cop. Not quite low-level corrupt. He just takes bribes from low-level criminals at, in, in return for looking the other way. And his, his partner is also corrupt, but gets caught and, and, and locked up. So he gets a new partner who's young and idealistic, straight out of the academy, and believes in doing the right thing. So his he thinks it's his job to corrupt him, so he gets an easy life again. And because this is a French film, of course, he easily corrupts him. And <laughs> it, 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 it's the most French kind of cop story you can imagine because everybody's corrupt, but it's all a bit of a laugh. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's, it's a bit of harmless fun that they're all taking bribes on the side. It's, it's fun. But, you know, again, I think they sh they figured it would be an easy easy story to follow and we'd, we'd like to follow the language. And um, the last one, it was like his, his, his end of course treat for us was uh, Betty Blue. I don't know if you've ever heard of Betty Blue. 
No, I haven't. So Betty Blue was a really famous film in the 80s. It had a really iconic poster of the, the lead actress in it. And, you know, lots of students would have that on their wall if they tried to show that they were really fashionable and sophisticated. They'd have Betty Blue on the wall. Um, and it's another, it's by the guy who did Diva. And it's uh, it's actually a bit, although it's like obsessed with like everything looking brilliant, it's a bit of a dark storyline because the woman essentially is suffering, struggling with severe mental illness and ends up having to be committed. But because the director is focused on like showing it all really stylishly, you, you kind of, it's not really clear what point he's trying to make. Um, but the, the main reason I remember it is because, you know, we're sitting there in an A level and it's all a lot of nervous teenagers, boys and girls sitting together in class. And the, the opening scene is one of the most explicit sex scenes I've ever seen on film. And everyone's kind of like cringing and trying not to respond to it and just going, Oh my God, why are we watching this? Why am I yeah, sitting like, next to Proper like graphic stuff. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, not pornographic graphic, but 18 rated explicit for a French film which is pretty explicit. Um, yeah. And it's like, oh my God. But I do have fond memories of having a teacher that was prepared to essentially show us some really cool French art house films. Well, to be fair, actually, now that you said it, I thought I had none left, but we saw a couple of films in French, um, which were quite good. We saw, um, it's called Une Longue Dimanche, Dimanche de Fiancée, which means the very long engagement, and it's set. It's, um, what's her name? Audrey Tattoo, you know, from Amelie. Yeah. You know Audrey Tattoo? Yes, yeah. So she's in it, and it's um, it's set in World War One, and her husband goes on, goes gets like conscripted and fights in France, and um, it was it's an all right story, but it was good to it was good to hear French. The best film, I think this actually might be the best film I saw us go, and it was a French film was Into Chable. Forgot I saw that. Oh, brilliant, brilliant! Yeah. That's a good film. That's an excellent school. film, and they they did a terrible remake with Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. Oh. Yeah, Into Chable is possibly yeah, it was one of my favorite favorite favorite. Yeah, that's a films. terrific film. Um, I remember getting to seeing this at school, and the guy I would sit next to in France, his name was uh, it was also James, but he'd grown up in um, he'd grown up in like France from like the age of to the age of about ten or twelve, so he spoke fluent French. So he was pissing himself throughout the entire film. He couldn't be watching. He's getting all the jokes, right? Yeah, I mean, we we had the subtitles, and there was some some stuff that we were like trying to pick up on, but he, sure. he was absolutely he was like sure. at, like he was dying like at how good this film was. That's and I would great. recommend anyone who's not seen it to not watch the shitty Brian Cranston remake, but watch the original French one. Yeah, because that's that could very easily have been like a painfully sentimental story but they got it just so spot on right didn't i with the, with the way that they um the way they kind of made it it's terrific the two main actors are amazing together no they they bounce off each other so well it was i think it was the most successful french film until lucy came out yeah which it's, isn't really a french film is it french because it stars um scarlett johansson it's just because it's, it's, it's a french production most likely probably that the, the, uh, luke besson probably got his funding from france mm -hmm. but yeah it's a bit a bit borderline calling that a French film when it's all in English with Lisa, with um, uh, Scarlett Johansson in the main role. But yeah, so well, what, what do you make of films at school? Like, I we've we've spoke about the films at school, but what do you think would be like the interesting bit to discuss? Um, I, I think it certainly helps you when you're doing it, showing it like a play because it's better. It's especially like Shakespeare and stuff because it's 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 actually really good to see proper actors doing the doing the words. Um, and I mean, I guess it was good to, I suppose when you see the war films, you do actually get to see a bit more of what it was actually like and rather than just, you know, a dry, but I mean, you don't, a lot of it doesn't, I think a lot of it doesn't teach you what it, you know, they think it's going to teach you. I think French, the French films are good because again, hearing French spoken by natives does help you, you know, speak it, it helps you when you're saying a sentence, it helps you kind of have heard like native French people, you know, speak in dialogue to each other. A lot of the time, I don't think it does the job the teachers are, are trying to um, trying to achieve. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think it's one of those. I think it's a it's a re, it's a bad environment to show people a, a film. Um, yeah, whether it's because yeah, it it's, one of, you're, you're sitting on a, like an awkward wooden chair, and if you know, yeah, if you're horrible plastic, like 15, 15 or sixteen, you're sitting next to someone of the opposite sex or the same sex if you're attracted to them, and and then there's a lot of sex on the screen. You're obviously it's a hugely self conscious age to be sat in a classroom watching stuff. Yeah, yeah it would just be it would be hard to people draw to people's attention span. They they turn the lights off in the classroom, so most people would just go on their phones or you know. Just mm. chat and stuff like that, but it wasn't. It wasn't the best way to watch films. You still got like a couple of gems here and there with you know, yeah, Jaws and Into Shadow and Shawshank. But it was um, yeah. Well, if you could get into watch a good film, it's always fun, right? Okay, so I I said the worst films that I saw at school were High School Musical, and it's a bit harsh to put Warhorse in there, but I'll I'll put High School Musical because that's the that's one of the worst ones. What are the worst films that you saw at school? Fox and the Hound. Really? Yeah, it's absolute rubbish. <laughs> Fair enough. I did. I did want to give one special mention to a, a film I was shown in. It wasn't at school, but it was. It was shown in a very similar context. It was in like a, a classroom context because one place that I worked. Um, the background to this is. I mean, I, I was still relatively young, uh, you know, uh, at work and still, you know, trying to get training courses and stuff to help me develop, you know, the skills for the job that I was doing. Could get longer in the tooth now, and I don't do that. But back then, I was trying to get training, and they had no training budget. This place I was working because um, the one of the senior people in the department uh, uh, was on a business trip and upgraded everybody to first class, that so she could get more points on her credit card. Nice, and that that wiped out the budget, the training budget for our department for that year. So instead of <laughs> so instead of a training course, we sat down in a, in a classroom sort of format and watched Apollo thirteen. What job were you applying for? Well, this is the thing, right? I was just working an office job, not to go into the details. It's an office job where you do kind of office-type tasks. None of us are in space. None of us are working with people that are in space. None of us are researching or building things to do with space travel. And I think maybe they thought that because Apollo 13 is about, like, very um, <laughs> professional people coping well under pressure, that it would be, like, a good kind of skills course. So what you had was you had some bullshitter, um, standing there who'd completely let a second in command get away with pissing our training budget up the wall pausing the video midway through and going that was a really good example of, of how people kind of deal with problems <laughs> under a lot of pressure and going yeah if we ever go to space that will come in fucking handy yeah, I'm not going to tell people what you do or where you work but you've, you've never expressed an interest to me in going to space no <laughs> and nothing, nothing, I, nothing I do or, or negotiate or, or organise at work it goes into space. Amazing. <laughs> and I, I just remember, why the fuck are we doing this? Oh, so they've made, they've tried to make a really tenuous link between, <laughs> this sounds surreal. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, we were looking at each other. The thing is, because you're, you're you know, the, you don't want to get in, in trouble with the boss because, you know, you, then at the end of your appraisal, she'll probably remember that you took the piss out of what she was doing. But you just think, Sort of stealing little glances at each other going, I can't believe they're making us do this. And they did it to us. I cannot... Honestly, that was all the training I received in a 12-month period at that place. <laughs> was watching Apollo 13 and saying, in your job, be like that. Could you imagine? Could you imagine, like, you know, being there, you wanted to train as a personal trainer, they just start showing you, like, Halloween, and it's like, oh, well, okay, yeah, he's a serial killer, but look how persistent Michael Myers is and, you know, how motivated right. he is. That's oh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's running around attacking people all night. Those fitness levels, I tell you what. Well, you want to be good at running? Well, here, here we have Forrest Gump. Look how good he is at running. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
That's incredible. That's just the maddest thing. And oh, Apollo 13 is a good, a good film and everything, but my, my preferred format... Knowing, knowing what my you preferred do format, it's got fuck all to do with what you do. Also, my preferred format for watching Apollo 13 does not involve some dickhead um, <laughs> pausing it midway through and, and commenting on uh, what we just learned in the previous scene. Oh, it sounds a lot like The Office. That's all from the Adamsons for this month. Hope you enjoyed it. A full and uninterrupted version of the interview will be made available as a bonus episode soon. We didn't leave as much out for this theatrical release as we did for our epic Oscar conversation, but there are a few extra bits for you to enjoy. Please feel free to join in with your memories of watching films at school via the Facebook page, Twitter or Instagram. As you heard, we may be playing around with what we call the feature, but we still intend to bring you top nerdy film chats in future, starting with next month when we will be looking at the controversies between Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino, and a discussion of race and equality generally in the film industry. Now back to the rest of the Nerdy Podcast magazine. And now for the Hidden Gem feature, in which I draw your attention to a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. As always, the aim is to give the film an opportunity to be seen by more people, and for the fine discerning double reel audience to be thrilled and enriched by a film they may not have seen before. I also try to imagine a parallel universe in which the film in question enjoyed the commercial success and influence it deserved, but was denied in our reality, and whether it would have changed things for the careers of those involved and the world of film generally if it had been a bigger hit. Previous entries in this feature have been Brian De Palma's Blowout, Richard Linklater's A Scanner Darkly, and Ridley Scott's The Duelists. This month, I'll be looking at an overlooked classic from the mid to late 80s, Angel Heart. It's set in the 1950s, and it's a fusion of a film noir detective mystery with a horror story about voodoo and Satanists. It was released in 1987 to mixed reviews, and it failed at the box office, but its reputation has grown over the years with a cult following who recognised its quality and an influence on other filmmakers, including Christopher Nolan. It's one of the best films by legendary director Alan Parker, who died sadly at the end of July this year, and in my opinion contains the best performance ever put on film by Mickey Rourke. So for a bit of background, Angel Heart started out as a novel published by William Hjortsberg in 1978 under the title Falling Angel. It tells the story of a down-at-hill private detective, Harry Angel, in 1950s New York, who is approached by lawyers on behalf of a mysterious client for a missing persons case. He meets the client, who is an eccentric and something of a religious mystic, and wants to track down a man who owes him an unspecified debt. The man in question is Johnny Favourite, who was a popular singer before the war. He was drafted into the army when war broke out, and was wounded and traumatised, including loss of memory, and hasn't been seen by anyone in over a decade. Harry Angel doesn't like the strangeness of the case, but the money's good, and having seen active service in the war himself, he is intrigued by the mysterious disappearance of a fellow soldier. It turns out that Johnny Favourite was into some strange things, including voodoo and devil worship, and the mere mention of his name seems to strike fear into people who knew him. If he's out there, he doesn't want to be found, and Angel is increasingly scared as all the people he speaks to in connection with the case seem to end up dead. The case takes him down to New Orleans and the voodoo scene in and around the city, and continues to get darker and stranger from there. The film rights to the novel were bought very soon after it was published, but while many filmmakers were interested, it proved difficult to put together. Other directors got involved and passed. Stars like Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford were attached, 
but the strange and exotic fusion of horror and detective story put some studios off. Eventually, in the mid-80s, Alan Parker got involved. Now, I mentioned Alan Parker briefly in the last podcast, as he worked with Ridley Scott making commercials before embarking on his own film career. I decided to discuss this film a few weeks ago, before the news broke of his passing, and at that point my plan was really to talk about uh, Alan Parker's directing style and career, in, in terms of a great director who has since retired from filmmaking. But now it feels like the right thing to do is spend a little more time on the life and times of Alan Parker and commemorate his career. He was born in 1944 in North London, apparently during a Luftwaffe bombing raid. He had a fairly modest working class upbringing, but was able to go to a very good local state school, which gave him a decent start. He got a job as the office boy in an advertising agency where he worked for David Putnam and became an advertising copywriter. This grounding in writing and contact with other people who had ambitions to work in films led to him working at the same company as Ridley and Tony Scott, and Adrian Lyne, who later made Fatal Attraction. Parker made a number of adverts which had a big impact and brought him to the attention of the film world. Between 1976 and 2003, he directed 14 films, a lot of which he also wrote or co-wrote. About a decade after his last film, he announced he had retired from directing and that painting was now his creative outlet. He died aged 76 after a long illness. His output as a film director was incredibly varied. His feature film debut, Bugsy Malone, was a musical set in Prohibition-era Chicago, filmed in Britain with a cast of children. And he's done something in almost every genre since then. As such, it's hard to pin down his filmmaking in a few words, but he was often known for a striking visual flair where every frame is going to make an impact, which came from his time filming adverts. He has a brash style, never flinching from shocking stories and images if the film calls for it. He shot to prominence at the end of the 70s with Midnight Express and Fame, and while they're two very different films, they both deliver a kind of intense, pacey, flashily edited hit to the central nervous system that really connected with audiences. His films from there ranged from a cinematic treatment of Pink Floyd's The Wall, in the same tradition as Ken Russell's Tommy, a drama about disintegrating family, Shoot the Moon, and then Birdie, a film about a traumatised Vietnam veteran told in flashbacks. He's not the sort of director to be put off by an outlandish story with gore and explicit detail, and having crisscrossed so many genres, he was already happy to mix horror and film noir, so it fell to him to direct Angel Heart. From a casting point of view, the film features a few recurring actors Parker liked to work with, also some jazz musicians who turned out to be useful actors as well for character parts, and some other interesting choices he made for the leading roles. Robert De Niro as the mysterious client Louis Cipher looks nothing like any other role he ever played, at a time where his choice of roles had departed from what we tend to think of as traditional De Niro. Lisa Bonet, a huge name on TV thanks to her role on The Cosby Show, took on the part of a young voodoo priestess with links to the case, as big a shift from her wholesome family image as you can imagine. And in the lead role, Mickey Rourke. Rourke spent the first half of the 1980s wowing critics and film directors without finding the lead roles that would turn him into the star his talent and screen presence promised he should be. A year before Angel Heart, he had a hit starring an erotic drama in nine and a half weeks, despite its mixed critical reception, and he seemed to be on the cusp of really hitting it big. Along with Matt Dillon, he looked like becoming the type of interesting leading man who could combine the looks and box office appeal of actors like Tom Cruise with the ability to make more grown-up and serious films. Angel Heart could and should have been his breakthrough film. With this promising combination in place, they found the backing of a studio and a decent budget to produce the film. 
As for the film itself, it's a very stylish modern-day film noir, starting out as a very faithful depiction of 1950s New York and the shabby life of a Dan Market private detective. It really does feel like you're stepping into one of those film noir classics of the post-war period and it coming to life around you in full colour. But there's a darkness to it as well. The opening scene shows the victim of a grisly murder lying in a seedy alleyway in the city. As the story progresses from New York to New Orleans, and from noirish detective film into garish horror infused with voodoo and devil worship, it builds up a tense and unsettling atmosphere with a series of repeated images and sinister music. A church, which may in fact be a satanic cult, with blood on the walls and mysterious veiled women seated all in black, whose faces are almost but not quite revealed. Recurring shots of a lift, in shadow, closing its crisscross metal doors and heading downwards. Mickey Rourke carries the film with a brilliant performance as Harry Angel, the private detective. He blends in so well to the era, you could be forgiven for thinking he was a 50s actor, and it's a nicely judged character. Harry Angel is not a heroic figure, and prefers an easy, less dangerous life, and is frequently scared and harassed as he follows the case. But Raw confuses him with a grit and energy that ensures he dominates the screen and the story. I went to see this at the cinema when it came out. It was 18 rated, and I was clearly too young to be watching it, but the Canon Cinema in Durham, as it then was, took very little notice of things like that, and I was allowed in for some illicit thrills. I would genuinely put it up there with the best films of the 80s, and certainly one of the most strange and different. Watching it again years later, I think it has genuinely stood the test of time. The film noir atmosphere is brilliantly realised, and it moves seamlessly into the humid, southern gothic atmosphere of Louisiana voodoo, a world that is equally well developed. On repeat viewings, you know the film is going to head into horror territory, but it's just as enjoyable as the first time as you watch Mickey Rourke get caught up deeper and deeper in a strange and terrifying case. Of course, like all detective mysteries, it has a whodunit storyline which reveals all at the end. Some people may guess the ending. I didn't, but I usually don't solve the mystery when I'm watching films, especially when it does as good a job as this of putting you in the shoes of the main character. Sadly, not enough other people were enticed in to see the film, and it was a commercial failure. It ran into trouble with the American film censors before it was released, and this probably hurt its US box office prospects in the more conservative areas. Strangely, given the film includes several grisly murders and mutilations, as well as a voodoo ritual involving animal sacrifice, it seems the censors had the biggest issue with the fact that we saw too much of Mickey Rourke's bare ass cheeks in a sex scene. It might also have been difficult to market the film initially, given that if you show too much of what the film is about, you give away the plot. But if you don't, people might think it's just a period detective story and not realise it's also a whole other thing. It may perhaps have done better if the word-of-mouth reviews had been more enthusiastic, but the critics were divided, and so it fell between two stools, really. Audiences who fancied a film with a period setting, men in hats and some blood and gore, flocked instead to see the same year's release of The Untouchables. That was an easier film to sell to the public, for sure. But the people who saw Angel Heart loved it, and it developed a cult following over the years on home video and repeat showings on TV. Christopher Nolan was influenced by its fractured narrative style when he was making his breakthrough film Memento, and numerous other films and video games have borrowed from its stylish images and cinematography. So firstly, I think this hidden gem is definitely one to recommend that you all seek out and watch at the earliest opportunity. It also deserves a look at what would have happened if, in a parallel universe, it was the huge hit it deserved to be. Alan Parker was undeterred by box office failure and followed this film with Mississippi Burning, which was a critical and commercial success. And his biggest hit of his career came years later with Evita, one of several successes he had directing musicals. But his box office form was hit and miss after Angel Heart. 
and he retired prematurely after making his last film in 2003, when many of his contemporaries continued and still make films today. When he belatedly announced his retirement, one of his regrets was how hard it had been to get finance and support for the films he wanted to make. A big hit with Angel Heart, a film made his way, and which perhaps only he could have made, would surely have helped him in that cause. For a director who made such bold choices and made films others wouldn't dare to, that could have only have been good for film in general. But in particular, it might have changed things for Mickey Rourke. At this time in the 80s, Rourke was a hot property because he was clearly talented, and anyone who saw a film he was in would remember him more than anyone else in the cast. But so few of his films were commercially successful. This was partly because of the films he chose and his reputation for being difficult to work with. But Angel Heart is not only a great film, it contains his best performance and one of the best performances any actor gave around that time. Who knows what could have happened if his talent had ever truly been converted into box office gold. At his best, he was fearless, taking on tough and controversial roles and pushing limits other actors couldn't reach in terms of intensity and charisma. But as it was, in our world, he became the George Best of Hollywood leading men, gifted in ways his contemporaries could only dream of, but didn't have even half the career he should have had. Ill-advised film choices were followed by an even more ill-advised career as a professional boxer. He later returned to acting, but was physically and emotionally battered, and he's only rarely showed what he can do on film. Perhaps also this film could have changed the career of Lisa Bonet, who showed real acting promise, but appears to have been a casualty of the controversy surrounding the sex and nudity in the film. She ended up only having a very moderate acting career after this. So that was the hidden gem for this month, Alan Parker's Angel Heart. I cannot recommend this film highly enough. It really deserves a wider audience. Albeit with a warning that it is definitely not for the squeamish. And while you are hopefully seeking the film out to buy or rent and planning when you will make time to watch it, I hope you will also join me in imagining that better world where all the hidden gems have the success they deserve first time around and the world of film is richer and finer as a result. Now for the feature dredged from the darker reaches of film history, the one that got away. This is where I talk about projects that filmmakers worked on, trying to bring their vision to the screen, but for various reasons it didn't happen. There are some potentially fascinating films out there that failed to see the light of day. I like to imagine in that optimistic parallel universe of mine, what would happen if those films actually got made, changing things for the filmmakers and for the world of cinema in general. I've looked so far at John Carpenter's attempted Stephen King adaptation, what might have been if Tarantino had made a Marvel film, and if an Arnie sci-fi blockbuster had been made by master of mind-bending body horror David Cronenberg instead. For this episode, I'm looking into another intriguing case of what might have been, a project that would have tried to fuse a Disney-funded sci-fi blockbuster with the darker psychological style of a modern auteur. This month's one that got away is David Fincher's Captain Nemo. In previous episodes, the kind of information available on the films that got away has varied, from hints and clues in the director's other work, all the way to storyboards and full scripts of the films that they were trying to make. This project was highly publicised because it was a Disney Studios project, and the people involved have given multiple interviews of what they were trying to do. But further detail outside of that is a bit limited. Despite that, there is enough detail, I think, to look at the film that might have been, and what it would have changed for everyone involved. Some of that detail comes, of course, from the source material that the Captain Nemo character comes from, and other films that have been made about this character. But first, the background. 
Captain Nemo is the creation of the great French science fiction writer Jules Verne. He first and most famously featured in the novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, followed by an appearance in his later novel The Mysterious Island, and later still in a stage play called Journey Through the Impossible. Jules Verne, along with the British writer H.G. Wells, is credited with pretty much inventing the science fiction genre as we know it today, and like Wells, he was hugely influential in the wider world, thanks to the ideas and themes of his work. Other famous stories of his include Journey to the Centre of the Earth and Around the World in 80 Days, and most of his stories are collectively referred to as The Amazing Journeys. In the original novel of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the world's great naval powers in the late 1860s are baffled and terrified by reports of some sort of undersea creature that's attacking their ships all over the world. It's faster and more powerful than any sea vessel at that time, and capable of terrible destruction. An expedition sets out to find and destroy the monster, only to be shipwrecked by this mysterious underwater terror. A few of the crew adrift in a lifeboat find themselves in its path, at which point it's revealed to be a highly advanced submarine called the Nautilus, technologically decades ahead of anything in any navy of the time. Its mysterious commander, Captain Nemo, belongs to no country or government, and has had this machine built after his homeland was destroyed by an unknown empire. His guests or prisoners must stay on his secret vessel indefinitely while he carries out his personal mission to chart and explore the Earth's oceans while periodically exacting revenge on the world's great powers for their greed and destruction. Jules Verne's stories featuring Captain Nemo have been adapted for the screen a number of times, including in the silent era and in several TV miniseries. Most of these adaptations are pretty forgettable. The most significant film to feature Captain Nemo was the 1954 Walt Disney version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Disney started making fully live-action feature films in 1950 with Treasure Island, and at the time, 20,000 Leagues was their latest and most ambitious effort. An all-star cast was hired, including James Mason, Kirk Douglas and Peter Lorre, and a huge budget for the time of $9 million. It was a hit and received good reviews, and helped launch Disney's ambitions to make a wider range of films than just animation and family-oriented fare. As well as that, it's perhaps the best realisation to date of Verne's story, even though it misses out some of the political and technological context of the original. Not long after the turn of the 21st century, Disney seemed interested in returning to older adventures and recapturing that spirit of 19th century adventure. They did a film about Atlantis in 2001 with a period setting and remade Treasure Island in space. No, really. And later in the decade, serious plans began to be put in place to do a new version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, as I'm fond of saying on this very podcast, the studios are guilty of making too many remakes and most of them are shit. So why would we be justified to make this film? Especially since the original was a perfectly good version of the story. Well, firstly, I would say that there's a general feeling that certain classic literature justifies more than one adaptation, especially if a fair amount of time has passed since the last one. Look at the different versions of Little Women that have been made over the years. I would also argue that the true spirit and intentions of Jules Verne's Captain Nemo stories are yet to be fully realised on screen, especially his political and environmental themes. Mostly, though, it's because Captain Nemo is such a fascinating character, an anti-heroic antagonist who attacks countries and institutions that were traditionally seen as the good guys in that time, and he very much argues for an unpopular and minority viewpoint. Nemo still has a lot of resonance today. In fact, a lot of people might be surprised that this kind of character was written and was so popular in the good old days of the Victorian era. Jules Verne's books were often seen as touchy subjects in a lot of places they were published, and many early translations into English were toned down for fear of offending the mighty British Empire. 
And so the Disney executives of the 21st century made the interesting decision to revive a 19th century story with some genuine relevance to the present day. Initially, they made an even more interesting but less defensible decision. Their original choice to direct an adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was the absurdly named director McGee, with Randall Wallace, the writer of Braveheart, taking on screenplay duties. This doesn't sound like a promising start to a film project of this nature. I certainly wouldn't be running out to see a treatment of this story by the visionary director of Charlie's Angels and the screenwriter who gave us the Battle of Stirling Bridge without a fucking bridge in it. This news was being reported around 2009, with McGee suggesting his casting pick for Captain Nemo would be Sam Worthington. I'll talk more about the casting options for that character, but in no scenario would this have been an inspiring choice. Fortunately, McGee and Disney parted ways on the project, perhaps after seeing what an absolute mess he made of the Terminator franchise. Disney turned instead to David Fincher, who is not known for big, effects-heavy blockbusters, but is undoubtedly one of the best and most interesting directors working in film today. He was interviewed at the time, saying that he is a fan of science fiction as well as of the original Jules Verne novel. He was fascinated by the idea of setting a film just after the American Civil War, in which modern technology such as submarines, scuba diving and weapons that can fire an electric current would have seemed like amazing science fiction advancements. Clearly Fincher got the steampunk concept of science fiction set in the 19th century, and his vision for that film, with a serious Disney-level budget and CGI aplenty, got everybody very excited. At this point, David Fincher had developed a very strong reputation as a film director, but he hadn't done very much science fiction at that point, only really his debut film, Alien 3. On that project, he was brought in to replace another director after the production was fairly well underway, so it doesn't give the best indication of how he would develop a sci-fi film with more of his own ideas in scope. He also wasn't the first person you'd pick to make a film aimed at all ages, including a younger audience, having made films like Seven, Fight Club and Zodiac. But there are very few better directors out there, and he's no stranger to big productions. The writer he initially brought into the screenplay was Scott Burns, who was best known for working on the Bourne Ultimatum and the highly topical Steven Soderbergh film Contagion about a global pandemic. A number of developments, changes, stops and starts followed, of which more later, and sadly Fincher pulled out of the project citing disagreements over casting and budget with the Disney studio. The whole thing went on hold for some years, and the last anyone heard, James Mangold was attached to direct after he finished his excellent Wolverine film Logan. It still has an in-development entry in IMDb, but there's not much recent sign of progress. The film could still happen with Mangold at the helm, but the chances of David Fincher's version of the story seeing the light of day are looking increasingly remote. So what sort of film could we have expected to see with David Fincher in charge? Well, to start with, he seems to have had some specific ideas for what he was going to do. Initially, Disney was going to do a straight remake of the original novel of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. For understandable reasons, the project departed from that fairly early on. It's been done, mostly, in the Kirk Douglas version, and it's quite long and better suited to a TV miniseries than a two-and-a-bit-hour film. McGee and Wallace, when they were working on it, were looking at making it a Captain Nemo origin story. This would have worked from the backstory Jules Verne wrote for Nemo in his follow-up novel, Mysterious Island, where it's revealed he was originally an Indian prince whose small, peaceful but highly technologically advanced kingdom was attacked and obliterated by the British Empire, forcing him to flee. The description of this fictional kingdom bears some resemblance to Marvel's ideas for Wakanda, although I don't know if this is where they got any of their inspiration. Prince Dakar, his real name, adopts the alias Captain Nemo and arranges for the submarine Nautilus to be built in secret, recruiting a crew willing to live at sea and share his mission of science and global rebellion. 
Fincher, however, took things in a different direction. During his tenure on the project, the film became titled Captain Nemo-20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, a subtitle we hoped would get dropped later. He and Scott Burns worked on taking the main characters of the novel and creating a new story that would be true to the themes of the original, but work better in a 21st century film. This would have included Captain Nemo himself, the Canadian sailor Ned Land, and French scientist Aranax from the novel, but would have enabled them to streamline the story in the most effective way and remove a potential struggle between being faithful to the original novel and making a story written in 1870 relevant to the present day. Brad Pitt was Finch's choice to play Ned Land, which he hoped would combine the acting quality he needed from a regular collaborator with the big name the studio needed to help sell the film. There was very little discussion in the articles and interviews I read about who would play Captain Nemo. I would have hoped, though, that they would have decided to make Captain Nemo Indian, as per Jules Verne's description. It would make for a very interesting character and put right the fact that he's mostly been played by white actors in other screen adaptations. Aside from that, there are some indications of the kind of approach to the film they were going to make from an interview writer Scott Burns gave in 2013, when they were still hoping to get a green light to produce the film, perhaps after Fincher completed Gone Girl. Burns talked about the film being about clashes between technology, commerce and humanity. It was also suggested around the same time it would be about 70% CGI and have a budget of around $200 million. Fincher was interested, as well as his previous statement of making a sci-fi film set during the 19th century, in the different worlds and ideologies clashing. Captain Nemo, the scientist and the sailor Ned Land, and all of these conflicts taking place in the tight confines of a submarine. Optimistically, that sounded like the director and writer had found the balance you need for all films of that type to work well, between the big spectacle and the personal story. Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Finch's earlier film Seven, was brought on to do additional work on the script, which suggests the project was genuinely moving forward at that time. In terms of the look of the film, there were plenty of reference points to help imagine what might have been made. The original editions of Jules Verne's novel included many illustrations, and the 1954 film added some of its own ideas to that source material. Jules Verne has been very influential in general to the steampunk genre of science fiction, where breathtaking technology is built with a Victorian look and feel. H.G. Wells and his great work like War of the Worlds is very similar. Another good reference point would be The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, Alan Moore's graphic novel series, which used the character of Captain Nemo as part of a collection of Victorian-era superheroes acting as a kind of alternative Justice League. This was made into a film with Sean Connery uh, as one of the characters. It was largely unsuccessful and not very faithful to Moore's work, but it contained some striking visualisations of Captain Nemo, portrayed by an Asian actor, and his mighty steampunk submarine, The Nautilus. I have a bit of a soft spot for that film, although I would much rather have seen what David Fincher could have done with that style of material. Visually, then, you'd be looking to see some of that classic steampunk style, such as various impressive sci-fi hardware, but built in a 19th century model, a mixture of techno equipment and Victorian costume. The Nautilus submarine would be a central location for the film, and you would think Fincher would have put a lot into bringing that into life. The combination of futuristic and retro would be critical here. Imagine a state-of-the-art 21st century airport, but with classic Victorian architectural design. David Fincher's rigorous approach to making films in eye for detail would hopefully blend CGI for the big visual impression with a lot of well-built realistic rooms and machines for the actors to perform in. Perfect world, you would want to see Fincher do for the alternative futuristic 19th century what George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road did for the distant future apocalypse. 
Other visual references to help imagine what would be possible, apart from other Jules Verne and H.G. Wells adaptations and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's version of Captain Nemo, could include Studio Ghibli's amazing animations of Castle in the Sky and Howl's Moving Castle, Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy films, and Jean-Pierre Jeunet's City of Lost Children. But of course you'd be hoping with his own ideas and Disney's considerable resources, David Fincher could have produced something new and different that would be the new high watermark for this genre. Of course, the other key part of what the film would look like, and where the story would go, would be the ocean, and especially the underwater world depicted in the story. Jules Verne was fascinated with the sea and with ships, and in his original Captain Nemo story, the Nautilus circumnavigated the oceans, visiting a range of amazing real and fictional places, and famously battling a giant squid. This is a key selling point of a new version of this film. Verne's imagination was legendary. Some of the technology and future developments he predicted were uncannily accurate and he painted a mental picture of the sea that has inspired filmmakers for more than a century. But so much less of the oceans had been seen or charted back then. Even in Disney's first big-budget film of the story, the most expensive film made in Hollywood at that time, with unheard-of amounts of location shooting at sea, it was limited in what it could show and definitely limited in what it could create with special effects. Now, with the exponentially increased capabilities of filmmaking, not to mention what we now know about the seas and what we've seen thanks to James Cameron's IMAX work, and David Attenborough documentaries, there's a whole new world out there to portray. Finch's film would not have needed to imagine any fictional undersea worlds. What we have now seen and photographed in our own real oceans would provide visual wonders on a whole new level. Imagine the full range of undersea phenomena, filmed with the pin-sharp cinematography Fincher always insists upon, on a giant IMAX screen. Apart from the sci-fi spectacle of Christopher Nolan films, that's about as good as it gets. No other Captain Nemo since the 1954 film has had anything like those resources. So I'd like to think I've described to you a film project that has a hell of a lot going for it, better than the average blockbuster for a start, and an opportunity to see David Fincher apply his skill and visual style to something very different from his other films. As discussed on previous podcasts, he is known for moving from genre to genre and varying his output, but this would really have been a departure even for him. So with all of these great elements being developed, why didn't it happen? When Fincher quit the project, he cited the repeated delays on the studio side. It's on, it's not on, it stops, it starts. Brad Pitt couldn't hang around forever and left the project, and Fincher couldn't just sit still and wait, otherwise he might never have made his other films The Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl. He said the corporate culture, and his words, corporate anxiety at Disney, meant he couldn't move forward. Every time he thought he had good potential names for a cast, they would either want someone else or want to doubly protect their investment by ensuring the main three characters were the biggest names possible, which he found impossible to satisfy. They challenged him over the Aranax character being French, presumably because they were worried this wouldn't play to a wide enough audience. While it wasn't discussed, it might have been equally difficult to find an Indian actor who they saw as a big enough name as well. This puts a lot of responsibility on who plays Ned Land, the North American character and nearest thing to a hero the story has. Without Brad Pitt, Fincher wanted Channing Tatum, a reasonably big name and a good actor, but the studio wanted Chris Hemsworth. Fincher perhaps didn't have quite enough clout by himself to win these battles. He's a highly regarded director and a lot of his films have done well commercially, but nothing in the billion dollar blockbuster range. And his most recent film prior to this, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo had done okay, but not brilliantly at the box office. I don't think this would have put Disney off working with Fincher. His reputation is excellent, and the sales of a Disney film don't rely on the name of the director or what he's done with a very different R-rated film. 
but it probably made it harder for him to get the boardroom on side for his ideas. Fincher can be a pretty belligerent character if he feels the studio is messing him around. He fell out with Fox over Alien 3, understandably, so it's perhaps no surprise that he cut bait and moved on to other projects. The underlying problem that Fincher could really have done nothing to solve was Disney's problems on other films. They had a number of flops around that time, and crucially most of their successes were either Marvel or Pixar, which are studios they acquired, not original productions. Traditional Disney releases were going through a very patchy period at the box office. They attempted to revive some famous brands, especially some famous Disney titles, and none of them went that well. Their live-action Sorcerer's Apprentice flopped. Response to Tron Legacy was lukewarm, and a new animated feature Mars Needs Moms made a disastrous $39 million at the box office against a $150 million budget. And what would have preyed on their minds in particular was the failure to revive several old classics in new big string treatments. Oz the Great and Powerful, a prequel to The Wizard of Oz, did okay but wasn't the smash they would have been hoping for. The new Lone Ranger film lost them $190 million. John Carter lost $200 million and brought about the resignation of the head of Walt Disney Studios. Essentially, the failure of those two films meant that the money for two other big Disney blockbusters just went up in smoke. It also meant disruption at executive level just when projects in development might be feeling a bit vulnerable. Add to that, other attempts to make films in the steampunk or similar genre have not always been successful. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was a flop and mauled by the critics. Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, more diesel punk than steampunk but it fits the argument, was a commercial flop despite decent reviews. City of Ember failed up to light up the box office and the planned franchise didn't materialise and Jonah Hex fared even worse. Those were the recent projects that had been on the minds of the studio, and further back in time, efforts like Baron Munchausen and Wild Wild West were commercial failures as well. Worse still, the most recent Jules Verne adaptation, Around the World in 80 Days, with Steve Coogan and Arnold Schwarzenegger, had been a terrible commercial and critical failure. There was also the film Cowboys and Aliens, which pitched extraterrestrial spaceships and lasers against 19th century heroes, and that was a flop as well. Was Disney right to pull the plug then? Was it just not the right time for another big-budget adaptation of stories and characters whose appeal to a mass audience 150 years ago couldn't be replicated today? Would it have been throwing good money after bad to try and make a quaint old Victorian novel into a blockbuster on the level of Marvel and Star Wars? I don't think they were. To begin with, there's a big difference between a half-assed rehash of some shit TV series no one can even remember in Wild Wild West and one of the greatest science fiction stories of all time, with a strong narrative to work from. Things like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Jonah Hex, and Around the World in 80 Days failed because they were very poorly done. And a lot of the other failures were perhaps unlucky. Sky Captain and The World of Tomorrow didn't have particularly famous source material or full-on support from a big studio, for example. But the big problem for most of these films is they just weren't all that good. As for Disney's own failures, in my humble opinion, it was a bit unfair that it made them lose their nerve regarding Captain Nemo. On the face of it, John Carter could be an example of old classic sci-fi set in a bygone age which failed to connect with a modern audience. Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote his first story featuring John Carter journeying to Mars in 1912, and the character was a soldier from the American Civil War. But bear in mind that in the hundred years since those stories first came out, they've been so influential and its premise and ideas used so many times from Flash Gordon to Star Wars, that it was never going to seem fresh and new to a modern audience. Plus the fact that, with the greatest of respect to Edgar Rice Burroughs, his writing was pulp fiction for boys that hasn't stood the test of time. 
Hence why Michael Crichton and Steven Spielberg may have borrowed wholesale from his ideas about dinosaurs still walking the, the earth today for Jurassic Park, but they didn't try to adapt his original stories. And Disney needs to take some blame for absolutely butchering the marketing for that film. It was going to be called John Carter of Mars, but they were worried that having Mars in the title might put off people who didn't want to watch a science fiction film. Why would you market a science fiction film to people who don't want to watch a science fiction film? Round about that time, half the films at the top of the box office are basically science fiction of one sort or another. It's not like it didn't have an audience. The Lone Ranger might also be seen as a reason to change direction. A classic story from long ago that failed in an updated blockbuster version. But again, that's a character and a style of film that's been done or borrowed from many hundreds of times. And the actual problem of The Lone Ranger was that it started out as a $70 million film that should have been more than enough to do a modern-day action western that spiralled out of control into a $250 million white elephant. As for Oz the Great and Powerful, it's about a wizard, and modern audiences are getting enough wizard action already from the Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts franchises these days. And of course, a period setting doesn't have to be an obstacle for modern audiences in a big blockbuster film. Disney themselves have had some success with big-budget live-action revivals of their old classics that were set in a bygone age. Maleficent, Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella and Aladdin, for example. If the story is good and people want to watch them, they can work. And Jules Verne's Captain Nemo stories are a lot fresher than the other adaptations that failed. Captain Nemo is a fascinating, anti-heroic figure fighting against ruthless and greedy imperialist powers. It's surprising how popular an idea like that was at the time, given how radical it was. Leaving aside various low-budget rip-offs and forgettable TV adaptations, Captain Nemo has only really had a couple of proper cinematic versions. The latest technology developments, advancements in knowledge of our oceans and modern sensibilities about the politics of the story, and casting an Asian actor, all of these things would make for a new and different film that's worth a remake this time. There are things in this story and its characters which are, if anything, more relevant today than when Jules Verne was writing them. And maybe the problem with steampunk is that it hasn't been done properly yet. David Fincher would have done it properly, and hopefully attracted fans starved of decent films in this style. Most importantly, Fincher had a really strong line on the story, and the central character of Captain Nemo, which would have made the film work. It's a classic kind of character for him to work with. Captain Nemo is a disruptor. He's fighting the world and swimming against the tide, almost literally. In a variety of ways, he often has these kinds of characters in his films. He himself is a rebellious anti-authority figure, and I think that interests him, even when the portrayal he does of a character like that is highly unsympathetic. John Doe in Seven, Tyler Durden in Fight Club, the serial killer in Zodiac, Zuckerberg in The Social Network, the girl with the dragon tattoo, Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl. These are all highly disruptive characters, and while Benjamin Button isn't putting a spanner in the works of the world around him like everyone else is, he is literally going in the opposite direction to everyone else in the world. The film he did about Captain Nemo would not just have been about empty spectacle, it would have been as substantial as any other film he's made. It would have raised questions for this century and connected with a fascinating central character, as well as delivering all the thrills. Disney should have shown more faith in the project and the director they had on board. So will Finch's Captain Nemo ever get made? The chances seem pretty slim. Disney seems to have moved on to another director. If it sees the light of day at all, it might be with James Mangold or someone like that. On the other hand, they seem to be going for the Captain Nemo origin story instead, perhaps in the hope of starting up a possible series of films. Could they eventually get back to the later story along the lines of what Fincher and his writers were developing? Maybe. It's not easy to imagine that they'd go back to Fincher or that we'd work with them again if they asked. 
He did work with Fox again after his turbulent time on Alien 3, so it's not out of the question. Another factor on the plus side, Finch's next film, Mank, is something he's been trying to get made for a very long time, and finally it's seen the light of day after fears it would never happen. Maybe Captain Nemo could come around. On the minus, Fincher has a lot of projects on the go, not just film. He's involved in a number of TV projects for a start, and there are other long gestating projects that he's passionate about, so this one might never happen now. If so, I'd like to imagine a truly great film that didn't get made in our world, but perhaps it did in my parallel universe where everything worked out as it should in the world of film. Maybe audiences there were thrilled and challenged by one of our great directors getting the opportunity to work at the same level as Christopher Nolan. I'd like to think so, and to imagine that this particularly mysterious and impressive one that got away is still out there, gliding through the watery depths of alternative film history. We finish as always with the remake Hate Watch, where I let off some steam about the lack of original thinking in the boardrooms of Hollywood. Original films are getting harder and harder to make because the studios don't seem to provide backing for new stories. We know of course about franchises and sequels, but what really grinds my gears are endless remakes. Now of course this may seem hypocritical of me when I talk about certain remakes as among my favourite films, and when I've been banging on for a significant portion of this episode about a more or less remake of the classic Captain Nemo story that I really wanted to see. The best explanation for my position is an article on IndieWire I found which puts it better than I ever could. When done with directorial intention rather than cynical commercialism, remakes can be some of the most inventive movies ever made. This is why remakes such as the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers or the 1986 version of The Fly are legitimate and not going to show up on my list for a hate watch. The remakes I'm complaining about are the ones when the suits in the boardroom just sweep all the scripts with new ideas on them off the table and decide to rehash a great film at huge expense, usually twisting the arms of creative people who would rather be doing something else and forcing them to do this shit. This episode is about just such a film, the 2015 remake of the action classic Point Break. Now, I'm always fairly angry and irritated for this slot as I genuinely object to the existence of these films but this time my piss is especially close to boiling, as to do a proper assessment of the film for this podcast, I had to pay to watch it. Was it judgmental of me to line this up for a hate watch before I'd even seen it, not knowing if it was any good? Probably. But I object to its very existence and avoided it until now. Now, having shelled out the printly sum of £3.49 and forced myself to watch this piece of shit, I'm properly fuming. Most people will be aware of the original film of Point Break, it was the pinnacle of Catherine Bigelow's early career, where she specialised in violent genre pictures, especially action thrillers. Her films were often more macho than male directors' films in those genres, with some people thinking they were celebrations of alpha male characters, and others saying they were more of an examination of masculinity, although most people just loved the over-the-top heist scenes, stunts, and male bonding between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. Among the most exciting action scenes in the film were those that featured surfing and skydiving, and this appears to have been the main interest of the people who did the remake, as it now features a range of extreme sports and an eco-warrior subplot. It's directed by Ericsson Korb, who Google advises me is a cinematographer who has turned to directing, and written by Kurt Wimmer, who is responsible for the execrable remake of Total Recall, which I discussed on a previous episode. He also wrote the script for a spy thriller called Salt, which is worth watching only for the curious spectacle of a film expecting audiences to believe that Angelina Jolie's spindly little arms could knock out men twice her size with Austin Powers-style karate chops. 
The remake opens on a sequence of an extreme sports athlete and his friend attempting a ridiculously dangerous dirt bike stunt on a mountain ridge while filming themselves on YouTube. The stunt goes tragically wrong and the survivor, Johnny Utah, goes off to train as an FBI agent, as you do. This is, of course, the special movie FBI where students in the academy are allowed to investigate live cases and give presentations on their findings to the head of the agency. And of course, because it's the movie FBI, trainee agent Johnny Utah is seconded to operate as a real agent because they need someone with his background to go undercover and infiltrate a gang that incorporates extreme sports into their crimes. So off he goes undercover to join the gang. It's a framework for a number of stunts of the sort you can watch on YouTube or in specialist documentaries. A lot of these stunts are very well done, but they don't add up to a film. It's not really clear who they are trying to appeal to. People who like watching stunts and extreme sports are likely to be irritated by the constant stops to play out a story that no one, not even those making the film, are remotely interested in. They've thrown a lot of money at the film, but in doing so they've taken all the fun out of the original story. It looks less like a remake of Point Break and more like a perfume commercial that borrows from Point Break, which is painful to endure because perfume commercials last less than a minute even if you can't fast forward through them. This drags on for two fucking hours. In the story, the gang Johnny infiltrates is undertaking a set of extreme sports challenges they call the Eight Ordeals. The bigger ordeal is having to sit through this film. Unlike the original, it's just no fun. There is some stuff on here which kind of half covers the whole undercover malarkey and divided loyalties because he's bonded with the gang, but it's completely uninvolving because no one is actually bothering with the story. The two main actors don't even have a fraction of the charisma and chemistry that Keanu and Swayze had in the original. And in place of the rambunctious surf gang in the original, we have a group of extremely boring eco-warriors. Which is just another piece of attempted story and motivation that doesn't get developed. Why do they want to snowboard down this mountain? To save the planet. Okay. Oh, here's a heist of some kind. Now some more jumping off of things, making rad hand gestures. While the original film may not have been written or made by surfers, they got that there was a whole subculture to surfing that would make an interesting backdrop to the well-worn cop goes undercover and finds himself identifying with the criminal story, and they properly went for it. Even though actual surfing experts would tell you they got some details wrong and it doesn't portray the real surfer world like, say, Big Wednesday does, they get away with it because it works as a film. This remake, on the other hand, feels like they just pulled some random cliches out of a hat and said, go make a movie. The wingsuit scene is a case in point. In one of the scenes, they set the challenge of flying in specially adapted suits at high speed through the mountains. It's a terrific stunt, really. I take my hat off to the stuntmen who performed it. I understand they used no CGI, so some seriously brave and skilled people had to go to some really extreme places to put that on film. Two problems, though. One, it looks like a cross between a flying squirrel and a sleeping bag, so it's really not as cool as they think it is. And two, in the story, there's no real reason they're doing it, and the viewer does not give a single shit about what's going on because the characters are so dull and lifeless. There's nothing going on between them, even closely resembling drama or plausible motivation. And that's the key. It doesn't matter that the story is bollocks. Of course some dumb bro who does YouTube stunts doesn't really become an FBI agent. And of course he doesn't get whisked out of the training academy because a criminal gang just so happens to be using the exact sort of extreme sports that he's into. We get it. But you've got to give us a couple of characters worth watching and caring about. Otherwise, why bother? Because if all you want to do is coverage of cool stunts, do a documentary about the people who do them and why they jump off mountains and things. That would be genuinely interesting, like Man on Wire or Free Solo. Leave the dramatics to people who can fit them into a story, like Mission Impossible and Fast and Furious. 
Then, having departed so much from the original story, including everything that was entertaining about it, it's as if the filmmakers suddenly remember, oh shit, we're meant to be doing Point Break, aren't we? Quick, do some of those bits from the original film. Said bits include where Johnny can't bring himself to shoot Bodhi and fires into the sky instead, while giving a roar of pure emotion, and the final scene where, spoiler alert, Bodhi just wants to surf the final wave and Johnny has a decision to make. But they're so perfunctory that it's just irritating. It looks ridiculous without any sense of genuine connection between the characters and between the audience and this story. That's what made it work in the original film, even though it's completely preposterous. And it's what made the homage to Point Break work in Hot Fuzz, but you don't get that here. It also falls into the same trap as the new version of The Italian Job. Don't remake heist movies, just make your own. They're all the same movie, so what matters is what else you put into it. And yes, I know that may seem hypocritical because I like Steve McQueen's Widows, which is a heist film and a remake, but that was an adaptation from a different medium, a TV miniseries, and once again, Steve McQueen is a director with ideas that he explores fully in the film, whereas the makers of this version of Point Break, well, they aren't. To be honest, now that we get to the end of the slot, I'm not as angry as I was about some other shit remakes that we've done. I was very pissed off to have to pay to rent it, but in the end, I just don't feel that strongly about it. It's such a futile, dull exercise that I can't be bothered to be that angry about it. I do feel bad for the people involved in the stunt work, as they genuinely deserve to be involved in a better film. Well, I think we've given the makers of the new version of Point Break a good talking to. I've also given them a £3.49 of my hard-earned money, so I don't think they're that bothered. Frankly, if they don't look at that film and feel ashamed already, nothing I say would make a difference anyway. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Special thanks again to James Adamson for joining me for the special guest interview, the full version of which will soon be available as a bonus episode. I wrote, presented, edited and mixed the podcast using Audacity and Anchor FM. As usual, anything that sounded good was down to them and anything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Angel Heart is widely available to buy in all disc formats, including Ultra HD and not too badly priced. It's also available on the usual streaming platforms, although the digital copy I bought on Amazon does not have subtitles. If you want to find out more about David Finch's Captain Nemo, there are interviews available and a couple of videos online, not a lot more. What I would recommend is that you listen to some general interviews for David Fincher, as he's a fascinating bloke, and to watch the original 1954 version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. To get an idea of steampunk and other ways this film could have looked good, look at some classic films like Howl's Moving Castle, City of Lost Children, Hellboy, and the Alan Moore graphic novels about Captain Nemo. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Hopefully you'll tune in next time. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media.